The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. And then something really cool happened. It's Thursday, February 8th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Elon Musk's little red Tesla Roadster is headed for Mars and beyond without its owner. He left the stereo on, playing an endless loop of David Bowie as the car speeds away at over 20,000 miles per hour. At the wheel is a dummy in a spacesuit known as Starman. Printed on the car's circuit board are the words, built on Earth by humans, in case anyone wants to drive it back or just wonders from where it came. Elon Musk, a U.S. citizen and immigrant of South Africa, says he believes sometimes you have to do something silly to achieve something great. He also believes you should try things, even if you're not convinced you'll succeed. Quoting the guy who owns Tesla and the SpaceX company that built the rocket, I wasn't sure it would work, but it did. The video was stunning and inspirational. With 27 engines, the SpaceX Falcon Heavy went up with the power of 18 747s, lifting off from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The world's most powerful rocket, powerful enough to go to Mars and beyond, lifted off beautifully from the same NASA launch pad that sent Americans to the moon. And although the Falcon Heavy's main booster was lost in a crash at sea, the two booster rockets returned as planned, lowered their landing gear, and touched down on landing pads side by side in perfect synchronicity. If they are undamaged as they appear to be, they can be used again, making spaceflight much less expensive. The engineers at SpaceX will now fix whatever caused that main booster to miss its mark, and that will make space travel even less expensive. But for now, Elon Musk's car is headed for Mars, blasting ground control to Major Tom. In an age that some days feels hopeless in this country, Elon Musk gave us a moment the likes of which we haven't felt since the early days of the space program decades ago. It was a reminder that we still have that ingenuity and the willingness to try something, even if we have to admit later, I wasn't sure it was going to work. But now down to earth as we know it. Donald Trump has now left even Richard Nixon in the dust when it comes to messing with the federal government's top law enforcement institutions. Trump, who expressed great respect for the FBI 16 months ago when it reopened the Clinton email investigation, now calls the Bureau shameful and disgraceful. Two months ago, he described the FBI as in tatters and the worst in history. Trump has already fired, defamed, or forced out many of the people who've investigated him and threatened others. There are still concerns about the job security of Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and, of course, Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Above all, Trump has relentlessly tried to create doubt about investigations into Russian interference, about his own campaign's involvement in that, and about his apparent obstruction of justice. In dog-whistle code to his base, Trump has said, Something's going on, folks. Trump is also bullying a mute, shouting at a bureau that by its own rules isn't allowed to shout back. And Trump allowed the release of a misleading memo from Republicans that jeopardizes the Russia investigation, future investigations, and so much more, all of which we'll cover in a moment. It's a memo that also tries to provide grounds for the firing of Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, the only man still standing between Trump and the firing of Bob Mueller. It's happening largely because the president is being investigated, says the Harvard Law professor who was the Justice Department's top lawyer in the George W. Bush administration. And Trump's attacks on the bureau that fights terrorists, mobsters, and kidnappers are working. A new poll from SurveyMonkey shows that only 38% of Republicans have a favorable view of the FBI. Republicans. Republicans, the law and order party, down on the FBI because they think the FBI is down on Trump. The attacks are working and weakening the Bureau itself. As another former Justice Department lawyer put it, all it takes to sink a case is for one juror to disbelieve the FBI. Witnesses will be less willing to talk, apparently Republican witnesses in particular. Many Americans will be less willing to report a crime to the FBI, to any law enforcement agency they no longer trust under Trump. More than a dozen of the latest exits at the FBI and Justice have been people who said, it was because of Trump. 
in his day, Nixon went after the people at the top, but even Nixon didn't attack the institutions of government, even as they investigated him. But Trump's attacks on the FBI also have a wider impact. His attacks and his release of that Republican memo containing classified information have made our greatest ally extremely wary of sharing classified information. British intelligence is less likely to say what it knows to a country that cannot keep a secret. And the memo Trump approved may do long-term damage to the trust that had always existed between the FBI and the Justice Department and the congressional committees that oversee them. Trust has been eroded between Americans and federal law enforcement, between the U.S. and other countries, and between two of the three branches of government. It was another good week for Vladimir Putin. Now to the memo itself, what it means, and what happened next. Empty-handed disbelief, mostly, as one observer put it, the kind of letdown we felt when Geraldo Rivera opened Al Capone's vault on live TV and found nothing. For any doubt the memo tried to create about the institutions investigating the president, it also showed that the FBI's Russia investigation was triggered not by the Steele dossier Republicans have railed against, but by the gum-flapping of Trump campaign advisor George Papadopoulos talking to an Australian diplomat about the campaign's Russian ties. And that diplomat had tipped off U.S. intelligence, launching the Russia probe months before the Steele dossier that Republicans claim started the investigation. The Republican memo argues that the Steele dossier is biased because a Justice Department official had said Steele was, quote, desperate that Donald Trump not get elected. The Republican memo does not mention that Steele felt that way because he had reason to believe a U.S. presidential candidate had collaborated with Moscow to undermine an election because if he didn't, they could blackmail him. The Republican memo argues that a politically motivated document was used to justify the illegal surveillance of a Trump campaign advisor, but the dossier actually gave us more evidence against former Trump campaign foreign policy advisor Carter Page, namely that Page was already being investigated for his ties to Russia years before the Steele dossier. The Trump administration, which once called foreign policy advisor Page a mere coffee boy, is now fiercely defending Page against the alleged evils of the FBI. And the administration's getting help on that front from House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes and other Republicans. We have also learned that the Carter Page surveillance warrant was renewed time and again, which only happens when the Bureau continues to bring the FISA judge new evidence that it's gathered on its own, dossier or no dossier. A wiretapping warrant is only extended if the previous wiretapping turned up something worthwhile. That government wiretapping of Russian operatives is how we learned the Kremlin had labeled Carter Page a useful idiot. So the dossier wasn't the reason for the warrant renewals either, as House Republican Devin Nunes had claimed. One Yale law professor says the Nunes memo essentially accuses at least a dozen FBI agents and Justice Department prosecutors of conspiring together to commit mass perjury and fooling a FISA court judge into playing along. Quoting the professor, it's hard to know what's more astounding, that a government bureaucracy managed to pull it off or that Nunes exposed it all in a four-page memo. The Republican memo left out far more than it included about the Russia investigation, as pointed out in a column by Bob Seska for the Daily Banter. Thanks, Buzz. Let's set the Wayback Machine to Friday. I know it was just a few days ago, but in Trump time, it seems like years ago. The controversial four-page memo about the Trump-Russia investigation drafted by pro-Trump stooge Devin Nunes was released unredacted to the public on Friday, and as predicted, it's a con job from start to finish. It alleges that FBI and Department of Justice officials targeted Trump advisor Carter Page for surveillance based on a political vendetta, evidenced by spurious links between the Bureau and the Steele dossier, along with the Democrats and at least one member of Congress. We've seen this form of trickery before. As I've been suggesting here and on my podcast, the Nunes memo exploits the complexities of the process for attaining a Foreign Surveillance Intelligence Act warrant, or FISA warrant, for conducting surveillance on American citizens, in this case, Carter Page. In this regard, the memo is more noteworthy for what it left out than what it includes. Let's dig in. Number one, it began with George, not Steele. The memo explicitly says in Section 5 that in July 2016, Trump campaign staffer George Papadopoulos, not the Steele dossier, triggered the FBI to launch a counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign for conspiring with Russian operatives to interfere in the election. 
Quoting the memo, the Papadopoulos information triggered the opening of an FBI counterintelligence investigation in late July 2016 by FBI agent Pete Strzok. What else is there to say here? Number two, the memo debunks itself. The memo goes to great lengths to make it seem as if the entire FBI probe, and hence the Mueller investigation, is based solely on the dossier compiled by British intelligence official Christopher Steele. Clearly, the Papadopoulos section on the very last page proves this to be accurate. See also item number one. Number three, salacious and unverified. Speaking of the dossier, the memo depends greatly on readers assuming the Steele dossier has been disproved. It hasn't been. Senator Richard Burr, the Republican chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, said publicly that his team was able to corroborate much of the dossier. The memo doesn't include Burr's conclusion. Ultimately, salacious and unverified, as it says in the memo, does not mean false. Number four, Peter Strzok. The memo perpetuates the conspiracy theory that Peter Strzok, an FBI agent whose text messages included negative remarks about Trump, was investigating Trump due to Strzok's politics. But once again, the memo leaves out any mention of Strzok criticizing Hillary Clinton and other candidates, which he did. Why? The answer is obvious. The memo also fails to mention that Strzok helped draft the infamous Comey letter released just before the election and which helped push Trump over the top. Number five, Steele and the media. Nunes writes in the memo, quote, Steele's numerous encounters with the media violated the cardinal rule of source handling, maintaining confidentiality. Yeah, that's rich. The entire Nunes memo is a violation of source handling, given that it exposes sources and methods, according to the FBI, one of those sources being Christopher Steele. Number six, essential part. The first sentence in section one of the memo describes the Steele dossier as an essential part of the FISA application for conducting surveillance on Carter Page. The word part suggests there are, naturally, other parts. What was the extent of this other evidence? Nunes doesn't say. Once again, it's all about what's left out of the memo. In this case, Nunes refuses to tell us what other evidence was presented against Page. He also fails to tell us what new information was collected on Page via the FBI's surveillance when the Bureau renewed the FISA applications every 90 days. In other words, the FBI had to show the FISA court it was collecting valuable information from its surveillance in order to continue targeting Page. Nunes refuses to reveal these details, And I think we know why. Number seven, the McCabe quote. The memo suggests outgoing FBI Director Andrew McCabe told Congress there would be no surveillance of Page were it not for the inclusion of the Steele dossier in the FISA application. This is highly misleading. The memo says that McCabe, in a December hearing, told Congress that, quote, no surveillance warrant would have been sought from the FISC, that's the FISA court, without the Steele dossier information, unquote. Trumpers are insisting this means that McCabe admitted to Congress that the Steele dossier was the basis for the FISA application. However, earlier in the memo, we learned that the dossier was only a part of the FISA application. See also number six. Also, Nunes is likely mischaracterizing McCabe's quote. I believe McCabe meant that the FBI had to include the dossier since some of it was corroborated and because it was part, quoting Nunes, of the evidence against Page, not that it was the end-all be-all of the FISA application. This misleading line was repeated by Donald Trump Jr. on Friday, as well as Representative Lee Zeldin of New York. I confronted Zeldin to produce the actual McCabe quote in context, and as of this reporting, he hasn't responded. On top of all of that, two sources told national security journalist Spencer Ackerman of the Daily Beast that the McCabe paraphrasing is 100% wrong. Number eight, politics and law enforcement. The point of the memo is to suggest political motivations guided the pursuit of Page and Hence Trump. So if politics and law enforcement aren't allowed to mix, then Joe Arpaio and Sheriff David Clark are in serious trouble if they arrested any Democrats. Number nine, the free beacon. Hello. The memo makes a huge deal over the fact that the DNC picked up the financing of Fusion GPS's and Steele's work. But there's not a single mention in the memo about how the process was originally launched and financed by the Washington Free Beacon, a Republican news outlet. Number 10. Page is Trump and Trump is Page. The Trump White House has, for about a year, distanced itself from Carter Page. But now, suddenly, Page is the poster boy for the persecution of Trump. So he's an important figure in the Trump campaign now? Wow, thanks for telling us, Mr. Nunes. Big help right there. 
There is, of course, much more to say about the memo and the repercussions of it, but these are the most glaring problems with a deeply problematic document. The Democratic memo will likely repeat much of what I've written here, but with much more detail. Meanwhile, you can rest assured knowing this is nothing but smoke and mirrors intended to dupe the easily led automatons who watch Fox News Channel. No one else will be fooled by this piece of crap. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of his work also at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. And we have since learned more about Carter Page's close, close relationship with Russia. Video has surfaced of Page in Moscow speaking in support of Vladimir Putin during the Trump campaign that was underway back here in the States. In that Moscow speech, Page called the U.S. international affairs strategy hostile and discussed what he called the failure of U.S. leaders. In December of 2016, Page appeared on Russian TV and said he's, quote, been working and coming to Russia and living in Russia for 25 years. A few years back, the FBI was investigating Russian spies in New York, spies who were posing as trade representatives. The surveillance of those Russians also ensnared an American now known to be Carter Page. We now know Page spent three months working for a consulting firm back in 98, but wasn't a good fit, says the firm's founder because of Page's extremely pro-Kremlin views. In 2004, Page moved to Moscow as an energy consultant for Merrill Lynch. There, he got close to Russia's oil and gas company, Gazprom. After that, Page had an office connected to Trump Tower in New York City. In 2013, Page wrote a letter in which he bragged he was an advisor to the Kremlin. When Trump announced his foreign policy team during the campaign, Carter Page was the second name Trump read from his list. In the summer of 2016, in the months leading up to the election, Carter Page went back to Russia, a trip okayed by the Trump campaign. His visit included secret meetings, according to the Steele dossier. It says Page was told that the Russians had dirt on Clinton, but also on Trump, and that Trump, quote, should bear this in mind, end quote, when dealing with Moscow. The Russians call it compromat. We call it blackmail. It was about the time of Page's most recent Russia trip that the FBI became suspicious that this aide to Donald Trump was, in fact, a Russian agent. That's when the FBI asked the court for permission to tap Page's phones. But this week's Republican memo says that surveillance was all politically motivated and a violation of the law. Never mind what Carter Page was doing for the Trump campaign and for Russia. The oddest, most through-the-looking-glass aspect of this Republican memo and Trump's backing of it is the contradiction. Trump and those who back him claim the memo proves the Democratic deep state is against him, even though nearly everyone involved in the investigation is Republican. For blame, Trump pointed to the people at the top of the FBI and the Justice Department but tweeted, rank and file are great people. He might not feel that way if he had read the statement from the FBI agent's professional organization, which stood by the agent's work and the people who lead them. But here was Trump maligning people he himself had appointed, including FBI Director Christopher Wray. Trump ignored national security pleas to block release of that Republican memo, and if anything, Trump's handling of the memo just adds to the obstruction of justice case against him, a case that's become overwhelming. But Trump believed that the memo affirmed what he and others wanted to believe, that the memo had discredited the FBI investigation and vindicated him. It didn't. There was talk that FBI Director Ray would quit if Trump allowed the release of that biased memo. For Ray to either quit or be fired would be another nightmare for the White House, since it's been less than a year since Trump fired the last FBI director. But in the middle of the memo fray, Christopher Wray announced he intends to stay put and praised his dedicated agents and their careful work. Trump and Devin Nunes and others have attacked the FBI, and the FBI doesn't like it. Not the brass, not the rank and file. And the FBI isn't exactly powerless. Even if it's not allowed to publicly debate the president, there's a lot the FBI can do. There's a lot the FBI has already done. And while the leadership of the FBI continues to defend its troops, there is no one leading such a cheer, such a defense at the Department of Justice. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has been strikingly absent during the entire memo controversy, and the morale damage that memo has done 
at an already troubled Justice Department. Sessions is recused from the Russia investigation, but so far as we know, he is not recused from running the rest of that executive branch agency. A Harvard law professor who worked for George W. Bush asked about Sessions, why isn't he sticking up for the department? We've also not heard from the number two man at the Justice Department, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, whose job already appears to be hanging by a thread. The second senior-ranking Democrat in the Senate, Illinois' Dick Durbin, is warning Republicans that if their memo is meant to justify ending the Trump-Russia investigation, the country will fall into constitutional crisis. Durbin says to end the Trump-Russia investigation would say that in America, one man is above the law. And then there's House Speaker Paul Ryan, who has so far dodged and weaved his way through controversies involving Devin Nunes and that Republican memo. Ryan says the Republican memo does nothing to discredit the FBI or the Justice Department, despite the damage outlined here a moment ago. Ryan, who's also okayed releasing the Democrats' counter-memo, stood by Nunes' plan to release the Republican memo. Nunes' House Intelligence Committee voted not to release the Democratic rebuttal memo and Ryan signed off on that. Ryan had made his shocking choice, siding with a sketchy partisan memo over the integrity of the Justice Department and its FBI. And although we can guess, we don't really know why that was Ryan's choice. But we do know it was foretold by Trump's guy, Carter Page, who's even more talkative than Papadopoulos. And even better, Page loves to appear on cable news channels. A few months ago, Page was in front of the cameras predicting that it would be Paul Ryan who would exonerate him in the controversy over this politically motivated warrant to eavesdrop on him. Months before the release of the memo approved by Paul Ryan, Carter Page said Ryan would exonerate him. Unfortunately for Page, it didn't work out that way. And unfortunate, perhaps, for Paul Ryan. Both Ryan and Oversight Committee Chairman Trey Gowdy have said they have faith in Robert Mueller and both claim the Republican memo did nothing to undercut Mueller's investigation. The case against the Trump-Russia investigation had done damage, whether it was a strong case or a weak case. Politically, threatening to release the memo had sharper teeth than the memo itself, which is why perhaps Nunes is reportedly preparing as many as five more memos claiming to have more supposed examples of alleged wrongdoing. And this time, Nunes will be going after not just the FBI and the Justice Department, but the U.S. State Department as well. These memos, we're told, will not go through the same dramatic release process as the first involving the president, but rather, they'll simply be released. Quoting Nunes Friday on Fox, we are in the middle of what I call phase two of our investigation, which involves other departments. You cannot have a deep state conspiracy, apparently, without involving other departments. And through it all, there was also that Democratic memo, a memo written by the Democratic members of the House Intelligence Committee pointing out a list of false, misleading, and missing data in the memo that had been released by the Republican members of the House Intelligence Committee. In effect, yes, we now have two House Intelligence Committees, or at least two House Intelligence Committee investigations, one looking into the alleged bad guys, the other looking into those who pursued the bad guys. The Democratic memo about the inspiration for the surveillance warrant on Carter Page is a 10-page response to the Republicans' four-page memo. And the Democratic memo's been around nearly as long as the Republican memo. It's just that when the whole committee voted to release the GOP memo, it also voted, along party lines, not to release the Democratic response. Republicans wanted their memo to land first, in the clear. They just didn't know it would be such a dud after all that anticipation. And as the dust settled more quickly than expected, Republicans were still swept up in their desire for transparency. So after a weekend of ridicule over the Republican memo, the Intelligence Committee took another vote, and this time unanimously voted to release the Democratic memo. It would, as with the Republican memo, again be up to the president to decide whether to release it, and Trump was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. Trump had to choose his bad news, whether to release the demo that would likely make him look bad or refuse to release the Democratic memo, which would also likely make him look bad. Now that the committee has unanimously voted to release this new Democratic memo, Trump only has a day or two left in this week to choose his poison. Trump 
Nunes and other Republicans may come to regret their calls for transparency. It has not only cornered them into releasing the Democrats' memo, it may have also established a legal precedent that classified data from the FISA court isn't sacred, that others can access and publish it. So the New York Times has now filed a motion at the FISA court asking it to unseal everything related to the Carter Page surveillance warrant. That would cover everything put forth by both parties and then some, perhaps. If nothing else, a FISA court ruling might help assure that its classified data is never mishandled again, as it was this week. One highly plausible explanation for all this excitement over partisan memos is the distraction it provides away from the Russia probe, but also because, as prosecutors will tell you, a suspect often begins to accuse his accusers for lack of a better defense. The Russia investigation is closing in fast. Steve Bannon defied a House Intelligence Committee subpoena Tuesday, ordering him to testify. Bannon was waiting for an okay from the White House first, which was negotiating with the committee over what Bannon could or could not be asked. Without an okay from Trump's White House, Bannon isn't talking, even if it means contempt of Congress citations. Bannon was hit with this subpoena on the same day he refused to answer questions from either party about the Trump White House in what was, at the time, a voluntary appearance. But at the same time, Bannon has reportedly been fully cooperative in answering questions from special counsel Robert Mueller. Mueller could drag Bannon before the grand jury if Bannon were anything less than cooperative. Mueller's bite is sharper than Congress's, and Bannon's due to meet again with Mueller today or tomorrow. Other progress in the Russia probe, other scandals, and Trump's big parade after this. If you're ready to go wireless, then get the Heller Bluetooth earbuds from tweakedaudio.com. The Hellers are wireless to hook you up with your favorite songs, phone calls, and podcasts like this one. And the Hellers stay in your ears with five hours of use and 100 hours of standby time between USB charges. The Heller have a built-in mic, a storage pouch, and comfortable gels in three sizes. Tweaked Audio's wired earbuds, meanwhile, come in a range of colors. You can even get buds in sets of two or three. And Tweaked Audio earbuds just sound better. Certainly can't beat the prices for this level of quality, guaranteed. And the shipping is free anywhere on the planet. And because everything sounds better on Tweaked Audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code BBNC at tweakedaudio.com. Thanks for supporting this news through tweakedaudio.com, all my other great sponsors, and through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. On Monday, we learned that Trump's lawyers have advised him not to sit down for a face-to-face interview with Robert Mueller. As with Steve Bannon, this opens Trump as well to a possible subpoena by Mueller that would force Trump to testify before a grand jury or face perjury charges. Trump's lawyers fear that talking to Mueller would likely put their client into a perjury charge even more quickly. In short, Trump's lawyers believe he will be caught in a lie in any interview with Bob Mueller. The Lester Holt interview certainly went badly for Trump. A Mueller interview would likely be many, many times worse, especially since Trump's lawyers also know about his history of untrue and self-contradictory statements. So Trump's lawyers have advised him not to talk to Mueller, according to four sources of the New York Times. Trump has said he's eager to talk to Mueller about both the collusion and obstruction investigations. I'm looking forward to it, actually, said Trump. Trump does have a record of telling the truth when he's under oath. He knows the risk of lying under oath. Trump has admitted more than two dozen times under oath that he had lied in the past about a whole array of subjects. He will admit to his lies when he's under oath. Besides, not talking to Mueller wouldn't look good at all. Trump's own lawyers think it's too risky, what with Trump's tendency to lie and then admit his lies under oath. They also still question whether Mueller has the authority to interview a sitting president in a criminal investigation. A decision is coming soon on that as to whether Trump will or will not talk to Mueller. Yesterday, CNN reported Trump still wants to sit down with Mueller, but he's not committed to it. Quoting someone else close to the president, he thinks he can work this. Whatever's decided, we're going to need more popcorn. A week ago today, special counsel Robert Mueller told the federal court in Washington he'd like more time before the court sentences former Trump National Security Advisor Mike Flynn 
Flynn has already pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about his contacts with a Russian official, and Flynn's sentencing day was fast approaching. But Mueller asked that Flynn's sentence be delayed since the Russia investigation is still underway and because Flynn continues to, quote, cooperate fully, truthfully, completely, and forthrightly with that investigation. Flynn's lawyers told the court they would also like more time. Both Mueller and Flynn's lawyers are due back in court May 1st to report on whether they're ready to discuss Flynn's sentence then or if they would again like more time. Last Friday, we learned that two lawyers representing Trump associates now believe the president will be indicted for obstruction of justice. The lawyers, one of whom represents a top Trump official, spoke with reporters at Politico, emphasizing the lawyers don't know anything we don't know. But quoting one, if I were a betting man, I would bet against the president. Independent counsel Ken Starr wanted to indict Bill Clinton for lying under oath about Monica Lewinsky. In this country, wrote Starr 17 years ago, no one, not even President Clinton, is above the law. Starr says it is legal to indict a sitting president and says it should be considered in Trump's case. But special counsel Robert Mueller goes by the book. And the book at the Justice Department says a sitting president cannot be indicted based on rulings in both the Clinton and Nixon eras. But whether a sitting president can be criminally indicted has never actually been tested in court and therefore has never actually been settled. If it comes to that, this discussion would likely be settled by the United States Supreme Court. And this week, we were reminded of an important distinction about the Steele dossier, that it didn't just make financial and kinky sex allegations about Trump, the dossier made a case that Russia had proof that it could use to blackmail an American candidate for president and after helping him get elected, use that same compromat to manipulate U.S. policy on Russia, which was desperate to ditch the U.S. sanctions for invading Ukraine and meddling in the U.S. election. We got this distinction in an insightful profile of Steele and his dossier work this week in the Washington Post. Post reporters first met Steele after he reported his findings to the FBI in July of 2016. FBI agents had met with Steele in Rome and, according to Steele, seemed to have gathered some of the same information as he. Because Steele had helped the U.S. many times in his more than 20 years as a British spy, because he was so credible, so reliable, the agents listened with great interest. They discussed with Steele paying him to continue his work. Not only did that not happen, the Bureau broke its promise to cover Steele's travel expenses to Rome. The agents explained that they would continue their work, but reminded Steele that as FBI agents, they are not allowed to do anything that would sway an election. Steele was frustrated that as the election approached, no American officials seemed to be doing anything about what he'd found. Steele thought the American people should be warned by someone if their government wasn't going to say anything. Perhaps the Washington Post would. The Post says it didn't publish the story at the time because it was, at the time, unable to corroborate its allegations. And while the Trump White House continues to pursue its agendas, more and more of its efforts these days are spent defending its very existence. Some are seeing signs of panic. Monday, Trump accused the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee of, wait for it, leaking classified information. Maintaining offense as his best defense, Trump referred to Congressman Adam Schiff as Little Adam Schiff. Schiff tweeted back, Mr. President, I see you've had a busy morning of executive time, adding, instead of tweeting false smears, the American people would appreciate it if you turned off the TV and helped solve the funding crisis, protect dreamers, or really anything else. Speaking of subpoenas and scandals, Democrats on the House Committee on Government Oversight are asking their committee's chairman to issue a subpoena to make FEMA explain why it covered up this. That FEMA paid a one-woman business $156 million to provide 30 million meals to Puerto Rico's hurricane victims and that she had delivered only 50,000 of those 30 million meals in the first three weeks when the food was needed the most. Millions of meals were missed by millions of people every day because they were never delivered. Democrats now want to know why FEMA, under the Trump administration, had even awarded such a contract and why it kept the results of that contract work secret for three months. 
It was a company that had already had trouble delivering on previous government contracts. The company's record was so bad, it had been banned from any federal contract worth more than $30,000. Yet the Trump administration handed the company a $156 million deal. Shortly after the storm, Trump gave his FEMA, quote, a 10 out of 10 for its handling of the aftermath from Hurricane Maria, an aftermath that is far from handled even now five months later. Another day, another scandalous scandal, this one with very real victims. There is also a mini-scandal brewing over Trump's housing secretary, Ben Carson. Carson let his son oversee a housing department nationwide listening tour last summer, even after being warned by department lawyers it would violate federal ethics rules. Nevertheless, the staff of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development got to know Secretary Carson's son, Ben Jr., Carson's wife, Candy, and their daughter-in-law, Merlin, since they were all either looped in on emails or sat in on meetings. The Washington Post got hold of a memo by that department lawyer in which she recorded that she had expressed her concern about Carson using his position to help his son make money. That son, Ben Carson Jr., already does very well for himself as head of a private equity firm that manages companies throughout the Washington, D.C. and Mid-Atlantic region. But what dad doesn't want to help his son? Or his daughter-in-law, Merlin, who landed a half-million-dollar no-bid contract for her consulting company, Meridian. My family, says Carson, have never influenced any decision at HUD. Uh, Senior White House official Staff Secretary Rob Porter is leaving his job today, resigning after his two ex-wives publicly accused him of physical and emotional abuse. Porter held an important job controlling what paperwork wound up on Trump's desk and worked closely with Chief of Staff John Kelly to try to organize a chaotic White House. Porter frequently traveled with Trump on Air Force One. Porter denies the abuse allegations, but he's out today, even though John Kelly had reportedly asked him to stay. Kelly repeatedly, publicly defended what he called Porter's integrity. We've also learned that Porter handled sensitive documents without ever getting a security clearance, That clearance never approved because of the domestic abuse allegations. There's also a report the White House knew about the allegations since early last fall and knew it was why Porter wasn't getting his security clearance. But Chief of Staff John Kelly kept Porter in that sensitive job and kept defending him until last night when a newspaper published a photo of Porter's first wife with a black eye. Porter had also been publicly supported and urged to stay by his new girlfriend, Trump advisor and White House communications director Hope Hicks, who assisted in the public defense of Porter. Trump, Steve Bannon, and at least one other Trump official have all also been accused of domestic violence. And there's a scandal that can be blamed more on bureaucracy than politics or anything else. The Pentagon has lost over $800 million. Can't find it. Doesn't know where it went. More specifically, one agency inside the Pentagon, the Defense Logistics Agency, which failed to account for that 800 mil that was apparently spent or supposed to have been spent on construction projects and equipment in 2016. An audit just completed by Ernst & Young turned up the bad accounting at the Pentagon. The Pentagon's Defense Logistics Agency says it does not disagree with the outside auditors. Yep, the money's gone, or at least unaccounted for, in just one part of the Defense Department, a part that has its own $40 billion annual budget. Quoting one expert, I expect we'll see much more of these things as the audit progresses. In spite of a wild ride on Wall Street this week, we got some very good news about our own personal economies. After years of growing corporate profits, but nothing for the worker, wages are finally starting to go up. Wages went up nearly 3% in January on average, so some got more, some got less, but they got raises. The economy that for itself had recovered a few years ago is finally starting to recover for the middle class, and unemployment is holding steady at a fairly normal 4.1%, its lowest level in 17 years. And that's why companies are paying more now to attract talent that might otherwise be scooped up by their competitors. Plenty of jobs and higher wages are actually one of the reasons Wall Street investors got the severe jitters over this past week. You haven't heard the last about Wells Fargo Bank. 
because of its recent history of widespread theft from its customers, the Federal Reserve has brought down the hammer. Wells Fargo has been forced to stop all growth and to replace four of its 16 board members, three of them immediately. It's been just over a year since Wells Fargo finally admitted it had opened millions of dummy accounts the customers did not open themselves, accounts the customers did not even know existed. People's credit scores were ruined. Veterans lost homes and cars. Under the Fed's orders, Wells Fargo cannot add another penny to its nearly $3 trillion in assets until it has cleaned house. Wells Fargo is the second biggest bank in the U.S. behind J.P. Morgan Chase. Its executives can no longer sit on the Federal Reserve Board. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says, however, that nothing will change at the big banks until, quote, actual human beings are being held accountable. Still, Wells Fargo is not one of the companies we hate the most. It's up there, but Equifax is number one for exposing the personal data of millions of people. Fox News is the second most hated company this year, according to the American Customer Satisfaction Index. The NFL was the third most hated corporation, followed by the University of Phoenix and the video game company Electronic Arts. Uber and the Weinstein Company made the top 20, along with Facebook and the Trump Organization. A separate survey of the best places to work had Facebook on top. Google, Southwest Airlines, and the Mormon Church made the best employer list as well. When banks and other moneylenders charged higher interest rates to their minority customers than they charged whites, it was the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that stepped in to enforce the anti-discrimination laws. A lot of the alleged violators were car loan companies, including one of the nation's biggest, which was forced to pay a nearly $100 billion settlement for charging blacks higher interest than whites. In such cases, blacks were paying up to $300 more for a loan than whites of equal financial status. The Office of Fair Lending and Equal Opportunity had the power to force those companies to repay the overcharges. No more, under the Trump administration, the part of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that enforced those discrimination laws has been stripped of that authority by Trump Budget Chief Mick Mulvaney. U.S. Army tanks rolling down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. at taxpayers' expense because Trump wants a military parade like the ones we see in Russia, China, and North Korea, although Trump's likened it more to France's Bastille Day, only better. I want a parade like the one in France, he told Pentagon officials. Either way, it's army tanks chewing up the pavement to be replaced at taxpayers' expense, burning fuel and Pentagon man-hours and other military resources at taxpayers' expense. And since he is the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces, the U.S. Armed Forces has to do what he tells it to, and ordering a parade is a way of using or abusing his authority. The last such parade in the U.S. celebrated our victory over Saddam Hussein and cost $12 million. That same parade would cost $21 million today, and it would require at least 13,000 troops to match the parade in North Korea yesterday. The U.S. parade is tentatively set for Veterans Day, Tuesday, November 11th of this year. Planning, says a Pentagon spokesman, is in its infancy. Make up your own joke. The route will also have the tanks chewing up the street in front of the Trump International Hotel at taxpayers' expense. Because Trump wants a parade. Democrats got closer to a level playing field in Pennsylvania this week when the United States Supreme Court denied a Republican request to leave its gerrymandered congressional districts drawn just as they are, as they are, had been struck down by Pennsylvania's own Supreme Court as being unfairly biased toward Republicans, one of several states where there are disproportionately more Republicans in the state house than there are Republicans in the state. Of PA's 18 districts, Republicans control 13 of them in a state where Republicans outnumber Democrats by just five to four. Four Democrats for every five Republicans, represented by 13 Republicans out of 18 seats, thanks to convoluted maps that have nothing to do with geography. The Republicans controlling the Pennsylvania House and Senate had filed an emergency appeal to the highest court in the land, and the highest court in the land turned them away and ordered them to do what their state Supreme Court had ordered them to do, redraw the maps to make them more fair, immediately. 
Republicans who argued, among other things, that there just wasn't time have been given now until February 9th to fix those maps. That's tomorrow. But Republican leadership in the Keystone State is refusing, which may leave the redrawing of the map to the state Supreme Court justices who struck down the first one. One outcome is certain. The Republicans will lose a lot of their edge in a key state just in time for the big congressional vote nine months from now. And yet, Republican voters across the country continue to stand by their man. A new Gallup poll says Trump's approval rating among Republican voters is 90%. And that 77% of Republican voters think the Russia investigation is a witch hunt. 77%. The Dreamers. The people brought to this country as children, the overwhelming majority of whom have lived here peacefully and productively for many years, continue to live in fear that their lives are being completely upended and that they are, as a group, a political football. The program that allows them to stay here peacefully and productively is called DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Thanks to an executive order by Trump last September, the DACA program expires March 5th. And once it does, the paperwork that allows protected dreamers to stay in the U.S. also begins to expire, a few dreamers at a time as their individual expiration dates come up. And some of the dreamers are in the U.S. military an issue of great concern to Senator John McCain, who, along with Democrat Chris Coons, have introduced a bipartisan bill to give Dreamers the protection that most Americans want them to have and to give Trump a study into the cost and impact of building his wall. As if holding them hostage, Trump had said the Dreamers and others could stay if he could have his wall. The McCain-Coons bill would protect two million Dreamers in exchange for a study of building Trump's wall, a wall neither Republicans nor Democrats are willing to pay for. There's a nearly identical bill afoot in the House. So once again, the House and the Senate, Republicans and Democrats together, have agreed on a plan to protect the Dreamers and study the wall. It's a bipartisan solution to a crisis created by Trump and that could be rejected by Trump, as happened with the last bipartisan solution. If it's any clue, White House Chief of Staff John Kelly told reporters Tuesday the president was inclined to just let the Dreamer program run out on March 5th. But, said Kelly, the administration would not target Dreamers for deportation, even though after March 5th they could. Kelly says the administration will have no patience for those who were, quote, too afraid or too lazy to get off their asses to sign up for DACA protection, Kelly's words. On Monday, Trump said the latest bipartisan fix for DACA and security is, quote, a waste of time. And what a difference a week makes. On Tuesday of last week, Trump said, I call upon all of us to set aside our differences and to seek out common ground and to summon the unity we need to deliver for the people. One week later, on Tuesday of this week, Trump said, I'd love to see a shutdown, as he condemned Democrats for not agreeing to his demands for that wall and for reducing legal immigration. In between those Tuesdays, Trump laughed at the idea that Democratic lawmakers might be treasonous for not clapping during his State of the Union speech. In other words, just another week of America under Trump. Today is the deadline to make a deal ahead of another shutdown of the federal government at midnight tonight as Trump rejects another joint bipartisan immigration bill. A two-party deal has been reached in the Senate, but there's trouble in the House where Speaker Paul Ryan has refused to promise a deal with the Dreamers, even though his Senate counterpart, Mitch McConnell, had promised to allow debate and a vote. Fasten your seatbelts. Sure, corporate tax rates were cut in nearly half by the recent Trump-Publican tax cut. Sure, it means a $6 billion windfall for Exxon. But it also gives a secretary an extra buck fifty a week since tax cuts don't pay for themselves, it also means the U.S. Treasury that was rated to award these tax cuts is now running dry, or at least draining faster than expected, especially once those tax refund checks go out this spring. The government has $136 billion less to work with this year thanks to the tax cuts. The deficits also don't pay for themselves and are not usually the kind of thing Republicans favor, at least not when Democrats are in power. This means Republicans, who have also been averse to raising the national debt ceiling, will be faced with having to do exactly that by the middle of March, about five weeks from now. The U.S. government, thanks to the Trump-Publican tax cuts, 
will now have to borrow another trillion dollars to make it through the year. That's an 84% increase over what the nation borrowed last year, nearly double, really. On the campaign trail, Trump described himself as the king of debt. House Speaker Paul Ryan, like Mitt Romney and others before him, has now had his let-them-eat-cake moment. Saturday morning, Ryan tweeted about a public high school teacher in Pennsylvania who'd said she was pleasantly surprised the Republican tax cut would more than cover her Costco membership for the entire year. And Ryan, out of touch with life as a public school teacher, added that this teacher was excited about her extra $1.50 a week, six quarters. Once it was pointed out to Ryan what he had confessed about the Republican tax cut, that it does not significantly benefit the middle class, Ryan deleted his tweet. Democrats declare Ryan deleted it because he realized that he had accidentally tweeted out the truth. We've learned some new and important things about climate change in this past week. We now know the planet has not been this warm for this long in the last 11,000 years. We now know from studying the fossilized pollen collected from the bottoms of hundreds of North American and European lakes that without climate interference from industrialized man, the planet would actually be getting cooler right about now. The amounts and types of pollen from any given year give an excellent reading of the temperatures in that year, and the fossils can be carbon dated so we know when it happened. So although we don't have paper records dating back 11,000 years, the Earth does. We've also learned this week that melting Arctic ice is starting to release methane and mercury at a rate 10 times greater than what human activity produces. The mercury's been trapped in that ice since the planet's last ice age. The melting of the ice caps is caused by climate change. New Jersey has become the latest state to reimpose within its borders the net neutrality stripped away by Trump's FCC. Montana and New York State have also blocked the FCC's plan to let Internet providers throttle speed and restrict content. Other states have similar plans. As with the Paris Climate Accord, the Trump government goes one way while much of the country goes the other. There have been nearly as many bad news stories about Amtrak in this past week as there were days in this past week. Officials are investigating a crash last Friday in which a charter train full of Republican congressmen crashed into a garbage truck. The drivers of both vehicles were sober, but the truck driver had apparently weaved around the crossing gates. But there's a host of technical issues as well, including breakdowns in signaling and the failure to install new safety technology. On the wrong track... On Sunday, an Amtrak passenger train slammed into a stopped freight train on the tracks in South Carolina. Two Amtrak employees were killed in what was the fourth deadly train wreck in two months for Amtrak. 116 people went to hospitals in that wreck. A track switch had been left in the wrong position, guiding train 91 onto the wrong track. And on Monday, Amtrak's Acela had just left Washington, D.C.'s Union Station when the hitch and walkway between the two cars came apart. No one got hurt, but the train was stopped and the 52 passengers headed for New York or Boston were transferred to another train at the breakdown site in Maryland. As America's gun laws have loosened, there's been an increase again in the number of guns seized by airport security. The TSA confiscated nearly 4,000 guns at its checkpoints in the U.S. last year. That's up nearly 17% from the year before. About 84% of those guns were loaded. The Atlanta airport nabbed the most guns, 245, just at that one. The usual suspects were close behind, Houston, Denver, and Phoenix. Quoting an aviation expert, when you look at the top 10 airports with the highest seizures, a lot are in states where concealed carry is common. To which he adds, in Atlanta, you can even carry a weapon in public areas of the terminal building. In Massachusetts, meanwhile, they have outlawed bump stocks, the accessory that helped the Las Vegas gunman kill so many people so quickly. A bump stock makes a rifle fire like a fully automatic, like an assault weapon, like a machine gun. Starting today in Massachusetts, having or selling a bump stock can land you in prison for 20 years. New York and California already banned them, and New Jersey lawmakers have just voted to ban them in the Garden State. 
At the federal level, the ATF is looking at redefining a gun outfitted with a bump stock as a machine gun. The rich and famous, Monopoly for cheaters, and the stripper at a middle school in the third and final segment up next. Just a quick reminder here to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do, so it's very important to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. If your Amazon dollars already go to another program, you can still support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just below the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thank you. Passings and Passages Paul Simon has announced his farewell tour. At 76, the singer-songwriter will tour North America one last time on his Homeward Bound tour, which begins in Vancouver and ends in Nashville through May and June. He'll perform in Seattle, L.A., Vegas, Dallas, Chicago, Detroit, and Boston along the way. Then it's off to Europe for a few stops, including a London music festival with James Taylor and Bonnie Raitt. That festival is July 15th, and that's it for Simon on the Road. Like other recent performing retirees, Simon says he'll continue to write and record songs. A distinctive voice from The Temptations has died at age 74. Dennis Edwards passed in Chicago with complications from meningitis, but there is now an abuse and neglect investigation underway to see if neglect was also a factor in Edwards' demise. Edwards joined the Temps in 1968, replacing lead singer David Ruffin. The Motown stars known as The Temptations were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989 and got a Lifetime Achievement Grammy in 2013. Edwards also had a solo career, his first recording reaching number two on the R&B charts. We also lost this week an actor who was as nice a person as he was an actor. John Mahoney, the dad on Frasier, died at age 77 after a brief illness. Born in Blackpool, England, Chicagoans knew Mahoney best as a man who loved the Windy City. He performed at the Steppenwolf Theater there for 39 years. He'd left a career in teaching and writing to learn acting in Chicago. He also won a Tony Award, and the show Frasier ran for 11 seasons and lives on in reruns. But for all the time he spent in Hollywood for Frasier, John Mahoney preferred Chicago. A lot of time has passed since actress Natalie Wood died at sea on a boat with actors Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken. They were all young and promising 37 years ago, but Natalie's career and the bulk of her life would never be realized. The death was ruled an accident and the case was closed, but suspicions abounded. After years of speculation, after years of success by both men, Wood's husband at the time, Robert Wagner, has now, at age 87, been named as a person of interest in the actress's death. The L.A. County Sheriff's Office reopened the investigation in 2011, and since then, more than 100 people have come forward claiming to have information about the case. The Sheriff's Office says Wagner was the last person on the boat with Natalie before she died. The Sheriff's Office says Wagner's story doesn't add up. And quoting a sheriff's official, we're closer to understanding what happened. Wagner starred in TV hits, including Heart to Heart and It Takes a Thief. Natalie Wood's last movie was Brainstorm in 1983, released nearly two years after her death. It co-starred Christopher Walken. In what is still for many brutally cold weather, North America stayed home to watch the Super Bowl and stayed away from movie theaters in droves. There was only one new movie, Winchester, a B-horror movie starring... Helen Mirren, which debuted in third place. Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, returned to first place, followed by the announcement of another Jumanji sequel. But even it sold only $11 million in tickets as America stayed home. Maze Runner was second. With the game over and a case of cabin fever, you can see previews, theaters, showtimes, and get tickets through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. And who doesn't enjoy seeing a movie with their best friend at their side, especially when that friend is a dog? At four showings this month, dog-owning movie lovers can bring their dogs, if they're leashed and well-behaved, to the Smith Opera House in Geneva, New York, upstate. There'll be free treats for the good dogs and hot dogs for the dog owners. The four movies for pets and their parents? Best in Show, Bolt, The Artist, and Must Love Dogs. Everything must go at Toys R Us, some of them anyway. 
As reported here last month, the chain is closing more than 100 of its stores in the U.S., so now everything must go at those locations. The liquidation sales started yesterday at 30% off, but only at the stores that are closing. A New Hampshire woman has won a half billion dollars playing Powerball, but she's refusing to claim her prize. Most of all, being an engaged community member, she doesn't want it known that she won $560 million from the lottery. She'd prefer to give it to charity if everyone could just keep her name out of it. But rules are rules, say state lottery officials. Under New Hampshire's open records law, lottery officials are required to publish the name of the winner unless the name on the back of the winning ticket is that of a trust instead of a person. The woman, now known only as Jane Doe, says she made a big mistake by signing the back of her ticket and didn't realize she was revealing her win to the public. So she is now suing the state to try to protect her anonymity. And she is not picking up her payout from a half-billion-dollar lottery win. Even though the games don't officially begin until Friday night, a record has already been set at the Pyeongchang Olympics. Most condoms ever distributed to a gathering of athletes. 110,000 condoms, about 10,000 more than the previous record. It's also enough for the nearly 3,000 athletes to each get 37 of them. U.S.A.? When a new home buyer moves into his house toward the end of the month in Houston, he plans to have a taco party. The tacos came with the house. A Houston area realtor is offering $250 worth of free tacos from Torchy's Tacos with the purchase of any new home. Or the buyer can take that $250 off the closing cost, but this guy wanted the tacos. A lot of people seem to. Quoting realtor Nicole Lopez, let's be honest, everyone in Texas loves tacos, adding, it's really been the taco the town With shocking reports of cheating in sports, politics, and finance, why are we still following the rules to Monopoly? Hasbro's on to us. The toy and game company has a new version of the timeless board game. The version rewards cheating. It's called Cheater's Monopoly. In this version, you can draw a cheat card that lets you move another player's token, steal money from the bank, and with no annoying banker to stand in your way. But you have to do what the cheat says you should do without getting caught. Otherwise, you go to jail or get handcuffed to the game board. And the properties are much more affordable for cheaters. Pennsylvania Avenue is now free to whoever lands on it first. The game comes out this fall for under 20 bucks, just in time for the holidays, no doubt. Quoting some cheater at Hasbro, We decided it was time to give fans what they've been craving all along a Monopoly game that actually encourages cheating. What could possibly go wrong? Besides raising money for the Girl Scouts, the purpose of cookie sales is to prepare girls for business. As in the real world, those with the most savvy sell the most cookies. In San Diego, one girl sold over 300 boxes of cookies in just six hours. She set up a table outside Urban Leaf, a new recreational and medicinal marijuana store in San Diego. Under Girl Scout rules, that's kind of okay, so long as she's accompanied by a parent or guardian, which this girl was. She seems to have a knack for business, knowing her customers, and location, location, location. A new study shows that woodpeckers get brain damage. They don't get it as easily as humans. Woodpecker brains can withstand blows that are up to 2,300 times more forceful than gravity. Humans get concussions with as little as 60 times the force of gravity. 2,300 is unthinkable for humans. But concussions do ultimately also catch up with woodpeckers, what with all that powerful pecking. Studying their brains might help us deal with the damage we endure in accidents and sports. And we finally have an explanation for the behavior of an annoying cartoon character named Woody Woodpecker. There is, it turns out, a reason he was so odd Animator Walter Lance created Woody after becoming annoyed with a real woodpecker endlessly pecking outside his studio window. Lance was going crazy from the rat-a-tat-tat and took it out on some paper with a charcoal pencil. But Lance may have been more perceptive than even he realized about why Woody was out of his mind. It was all that pecking. And finally, 
It would have made the children laugh and play to see a stripper at school. And that's just for starters. In Round Rock, Texas, a stripper showed up at the address that was given by the young man who had hired her. But when she realized that address was a middle school, she slipped around through the office so no students could see her. The stripper reported that she and the school had been the targets of a prank, a schoolboy prank, by a boy at the school. School officials say the boy is being disciplined for trying to get a stripper to perform at his middle school. At 11.30 in the morning, I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.